Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy. But you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Andrew Lawton, in today for Roy Green. And what a spectacular honor it is. I had the chance to fill in for Roy. He's such a hard worker. He never actually takes time off. I had the chance to fill in for him, I think it was last year, most recently. And it was just such an absolutely wonderful opportunity. I was grateful that I get the chance to do it again. I'll be with you next weekend as well. But we'll get the ball rolling on this little three-day stint this afternoon with some substitute host-level excellence here. It's good to have you aboard the show. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to talk about the ongoing refugee immigration crisis in Quebec with Michelle Rempel, the conservative immigration critic. That's coming up in an hour. Also going to talk about the latest in the NAFTA renegotiations underway this week and for the foreseeable future, as a matter of fact, in Washington. And also going to be talking, this is kind of a a fun story here, good for a weekend. The woman who was at a gym in Victoria, B.C. and told to cover up because her gluteal fold was visible. <laughs> the, the gluteal, now if you don't know what the gluteal fold is, I would very much recommend you don't Google it. Certainly not if you're on a work computer or around your kids, but we'll talk about the gluteal fold gate later on in the show here. So lots of stuff coming up. But I have to start off the show. I had a little thing that I was going to talk about here, and then uh, this just gets thrown out the window. Because about five minutes ago, it just was confirmed that comedian Jerry Lewis has died at the age of 91. I just saw this a couple of moments ago here. Jerry Lewis, the comedian that was like the great granddaddy of comedy, died at 91. Now, this was initially reported by a journalist with the Las Vegas Review Journal and then confirmed in a statement from the family that said legendary entertainer Jerry Lewis passed away peacefully today of natural causes at 91 at his home with family by his side. Now, this has just come out, so I know there's going to be a flow of tributes from every comedian under the sun, and I'm really looking forward to that because Jerry Lewis was one of the greats. And there was actually a, a documentary that was done about him, about everything that he did, about his entire career, his stand-up comedy, his work with Dean Martin, all of that, his movies, his TV shows. And it was in 2011, it was called Method to the Madness. And this had the people that those under a certain age would herald as the comedy greats. To be honest, it would be the one that the last generation held up as being the comedy greats. Billy Crystal was in it. Eddie Murphy was in it. Chevy Chase was in it. Jerry Seinfeld was in it. So you got to look at these guys in their heyday in the 80s and 90s. And now there's a new crop of comedians. It's changed entirely. You've got now the Russell Peters, the Amy Schumer, the Aziz Ansari, all that sort of stuff. But in this documentary... Jerry Seinfeld had a a really apropos comment about Jerry Lewis. He said, if you don't get Jerry Lewis, you don't understand comedy. 
And this is something that I find find really interesting. The guy wasn't a nice guy in his later years. You may remember there was that famous interview he did with The Hollywood Reporter where I think he had like seven minutes, the reporter did. And it was a very long seven minutes. He asked him questions and every answer was, yep, nope, yep. Yep, no. Jerry Lewis did not want to be there. And at the end of it, he said, get out of my house. And even to this day, I think that was like a good year or two years ago, everyone's been wondering, was Jerry Lewis actually being a jerk or was Jerry Lewis doing a bit? And everyone but the reporter was actually supposed to be enjoying the bit. And I still don't know the answer to that. I still don't know if Jerry Lewis was just being a a crotchety old jerk or if he was doing a a really in-depth, committed-to-the-bit performance comedy role. Either way, the man's career has been almost unrivaled in comedy. To have had the staying power in comedy that he did, to have had all of these different things in your life that you've been able to accomplish from his collaborations with Dean Martin, his solo movie career. A lot of people don't realize he had a whole bunch of movies that he did. Some of them were flops. Some of them actually did very well. And if nothing else, even people that don't like his comedy that found him a bit crass would surely know him from his 45-year run as a host of telethons. He had raised, and I didn't realize it was this high, $2.6 billion for muscular dystrophy research, a cause that was near and dear to his heart. And he did that $2.6 billion by 45 years of telethons. Now, I'm not good with the quick math, so I don't know if you divide $2.6 billion over 45 years, uh, how many dollars you get every year. And I also have no idea what we're actually talking about as far as whether inflation has been adjusted. But suffice it to say, the man did put his money where his mouth was and more importantly, used his mouth to make a heck of a lot more money. And he did that over the entirety of his life. So Jerry Lewis, if you're just tuning in, died today at the age of 91. And I'm actually really looking for, I'm not one of these people when a 91-year-old dies that says, oh, it's so sad. The guy's 91. The guy's 91. He had as long a life as is humanly possible and as rich a life as is humanly possible for most men. And you know what? He, I don't think, would have any complaints from interviews I've seen with him. But I always look forward to whenever a comedian does pass. I don't look forward to that. But when one does pass, I always look forward to how other comics honor them. Because the one thing that's important for people to realize here is that in comedy, when you die, it's generally accepted that you are going to go out the same way that you lived your life. They are not going to be nice to you. They are not going to be kind to you. They are going to roast you until you could be served at a wine and cheese party. You're going to be so toast. And that is the way they want to be remembered. That's the way they want to be honored. And I remember if you've ever watched the Comedy Central roasts that are on now, or even going back uh, decades, the Dean Martin roast, you'll see that's exactly what they do. The nicest thing that can be said to you by a fellow comic is something that most other people would never say to anyone they ever loved. But that's how you know you were enshrined in there. And that's why Don Rickles, when he passed away, the tributes were <laughs> just eviscerating him. Because that was how he would have wanted to be acknowledged. So obviously we wish uh, Jerry Lewis's family the very best. Thoughts and prayers are with them. But more importantly, we thank him for the laughs over the last 91 years. I wasn't around for most of the 91 years, but we do thank him very much for those laughs and his family for letting us all have a little piece of that man. We have to take a break here. When we come back on the other side, I want to talk about a couple of cities of relevance here. One is Charlottesville. The other is Boston, both cities that have played host to massive demonstrations, one last week, one yesterday. The context of free speech has come up immensely in this, but so has the value and role that hate play 
in this world. So we'll talk to up next Elizabeth Moore, a, a former neo-Nazi. She was actually a member of the Heritage Front, the most brutal group of neo-Nazis in Canada as far as their ideological persuasion is concerned. We'll talk about her perspective on really the renunciation and denunciation of hate now that she's on the other side and on the outside of that movement. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Happened last week in Charlottesville has forced a lot of people to answer some very uncomfortable questions. The media, people of various political persuasions, people who are part of various groups, and underscoring it, and the prevailing narrative that we've had since Charlottesville last weekend into the Boston free speech rally, that's how it was billed, and we'll talk about later on the problems with that event very shortly, but all of these things, there has been an undercurrent of hate. And I'm not just talking about the emotional hatred. You know, I hate Brussels sprouts. I don't actually. I happen to love Brussels sprouts. But I'm talking about the serious hate, the kind that can result in an innocent protester getting rammed down by a car, driven by a white supremacist and neo-Nazi. And we have people that believe all sorts of concerning things. There are then those thoughts that turn into, for some of them, actions. And I wanted to talk about this more broadly with a woman whose story I found to be so compelling. There was a great piece in the Ottawa Citizen earlier this week written by Blair Crawford. It was featuring the evolution of a woman named Elizabeth Moore, who in the early 90s was a part of the neo-Nazi group in Canada, the Heritage Front, and has since renounced it and actually worked with a Jewish group in Canada, working to counter hate, to counter radicalization towards these groups. And she hasn't been a household name in recent years, having, for the most part, just lived her life, which is, I think, the the best thing you can do when you've come out on the other side of that. But Charlottesville compelled her to speak out about the true power of hatred. Elizabeth Moore joins me on the line now. Elizabeth, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. You were a neo-Nazi, which is not something that anyone, I would certainly hope, no sensible person would look favorably upon. And and you saw a certain point of of this in your life that you said, no, 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 this is not at all how I should be. This is not at all what what a a sort of a normal approach to the world is. What changed? Uh, Well, I mean, it was was something that slowly evolved in me over time that, uh, you know, as I was uh, brought into the group more and more and you know, just saw everything that was going on. Like when I decided to leave, that was uh, around the time that um, all the mess with the Grant Bristow affair was coming out. And there was uh, just dirty laundry flapping all over the place. (laughs) And it was very interesting because the Heritage Front leadership would tell me, well, you know, this happened, that happened. But, you know, that wasn't really us. That was Grant Bristow instigating the uh, instigating everything. And, you know, I I may have been gullible in falling into the Heritage Front and the neo-Nazi movement in the first place, but I'd like to think I wasn't entirely stupid. And I realized that if they felt that Grant Bristow, who was a, a CSIS agent um, at the end of the day, but, you know, was uh, embedded in the leadership of the Heritage Front, if Grant Bristow indeed did approve of or instigate or, you know, whatever they were claiming at the time, I knew that the rest of the Heritage Front leadership, first of all, knew about it, and second of all, proved of it. And so I was just learning more and more things that, oh, you know, actually this did happen. Ha ha, oops, you know. And I, I started feeling more and more uncomfortable. 
And uh, and then there was one party in particular that I was at, and um, we were just sitting around, and it was it was such a, a crazy group of people. There were you know teenagers, like sixteen year old boys, and there were you know uh, older folks who were in their sixties or seventies, and you know it's just such a wide group of people. And I was looking around, thinking the only thing we have in common is that we hate the same people, and oh my goodness, I don't want this to be my life. I don't want this to be my life anymore. So, uh, so that, was, that was kind of a, an awakening moment for me that I, I just realized that I had to uh, make some very, very serious changes. <laughs> you describe in the piece and, and in other work you've done your initial, if I can call it a radicalization here, your initial sort of recruitment into the group as really stemming from being a misfit. You had a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder from all these, you know, people of different ethnicities and backgrounds that you saw at school that, you know, had this this racial identity that was different than yours, but seemingly all these better opportunities. But in a lot of ways, it's the same idea that we hear as driving people towards gangs, for example. It's that wanting to feel like you belong somewhere. Mm-hmm. Did that matter more to you than the actual hatred that was being espoused by the Heritage Front, the hatred of, of various groups? Or, or did the hatred really come second and, and morph into just, this is my group and this is what I need to do to get along in this group? Well, I think you need to understand that when a person is is pulled into a movement like this, you know, they don't come right out and say, well, you know, the answer to all of your problems is that, you know, there are, there are all these immigrants coming in and you need to hate them all. Um, they, it's, it's a very slow process of, you know, slowly introducing you to the ideas and also pumping up your self-esteem at the same time. Um, because I, I was really brought in when I ended up writing a letter to the editor of uh, the Heritage Friends magazine because there was a piece that I disagreed with where they were talking about, uh, you know, women being... Um, just opportunists and things, and I, <laughs> I didn't agree with that, so I, I wrote to them, and they said, oh, well, you're so brave to, you know, stand up to the sky, and, you know, you, you have a lot of important things to say, and you should come and join us at this meeting here, and, uh, and the, the initial round of literature that I was given was very, very subdued hmm. as far as the hatred goes. You know, they were just talking about traditional Canadian values and uh, trying to, uh, you know, create uh, a a voice for disenfranchised white people that, you know, they're they're really, I mean, in retrospect, of course, it was racist. But, you know, at the time, I just felt, well, this makes sense because this is my experience uh, of being like the only white kid in my class and being picked on sometimes Mm. and, and, and also just not having anybody to give me any answers, uh, you know, any nuanced answers beyond, well, multiculturalism is great. Look at our school. It's like, well, it's great for you maybe, but I'm not having a good time. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, what can I say? It was, it was a slow process. And I, I think people need to understand that, that you don't wake up one day and say, well, screw it, the answer to my problem is to hate Jews. You know, that's not, that's not the way this works. It's much more insidious than that. But the idea that we have driving uh, the events in Charlottesville, which is, I mean, most notably, this goes beyond, you know, a sensible conservative approach to the world. These are people that were shrouding themselves in in many cases in swastikas, people that do have very violent views, not just radical or concerning, but, but downright violent views, calling for genocide, things like that. 
it's not something for them in part because of the internet that requires that slow integration now. I mean, now you can have mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat thousands of people or hundreds of people assemble who already ha- have gone that distance. So, I mean, when, mm-hmm. when people are able to get so far in their, far along in that process without even interacting with another person, how do you stop it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's what was so frightening to me about Charlottesville is just, you know, not just that it happened, but the number of people that were there and and marching and saying such, you know, horrible chants and, you know, advocating for violence. Like it just it's it's a scary age. And I'm I, I have to say I'm I'm eternally grateful that I was a young person before the Internet came <laughs> along. But uh, these days, I think the way to stop it is just with counter education which is why i decided to come back because it seems to me that people need to hear my story again and uh so here I am. <laughs> well, and I, I'm glad you are, because obviously in sort of the confines of radio, we can't go through what for, for you has been the last 20 years of your life and, and, right. a, and, and even the years of your life that you were in the heritage front. But, I mean, the overarching perspective you've gained since is one that hate is a lot more powerful than people seem to realize, because I think there's this... This sort of sense that, you know, hate is something that we see on the Internet comment section. We see in a Facebook mm-hmm. thread and, you know, people are just going to wear themselves out. And, and maybe some do. There are, there are hateful people that are not violent people. But when we have this mass organized hate, that's where it seems to be something that should trip many people's radars and not in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, it's, I, I think people do end up getting a bit fatigued, you know, seeing the comment sections, whether they're on you know, something like Metafilter or Reddit, um, where people just will speak extremely freely, get downvoted probably, but, you know, they'll still say what's on their mind. And, you know, I think a lot of people just say, ah, it's just a crackpot on the internet. Ah, it's just, you know, it's just somebody who's spewing something to stir up people's emotions and they don't really mean it. But then you just don't know with, with an internet stranger, you know, what do they really mean? And, uh, and there's, Obviously, after Charlottesville, obviously a lot of people who do mean it, and and that's very concerning. Mm-hmm. And I think that that message, as cliched as it sounds, that you know love needs to triumph over hate, is a very important one. Joining me is Elizabeth Moore, former member of the Heritage Front, a neo-Nazi group. It is great to have you on the other side, and also great to have you speaking out. Although I know it's not the world being where you wanted it to be, but thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm Andrew Lawton, in for Roy today and also next weekend as well. We just spoke with former neo-Nazi Elizabeth Moore a couple of moments ago about the really prevailing powers of hate in the most broad sense, but she has broken her essentially silence on her own past and her own advocacy as a result. She's broken that silence because of Charlottesville. And I think that is significant because she's been a part of these groups that are causing so many problems now. But the problem is that our collective hatred of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, which I think is something that I, I certainly hope everyone shares, and I know not everyone does, but every sensible person does, our collective hatred of that group and those people, I think that's the acceptable form of hatred, when you're hating people who are so consumed by and defined by hate, is something that... A lot of people now essentially say means you have to give a pass to all of those who are fighting against them. You have to give a pass to the hateful 
violent rhetoric from some activists within Black Lives Matter because they're opposing Nazis. You have to give Antifa a pass because they're opposing Nazis. And I said all throughout the week here, with Charlottesville, I think we have, in some cases, bad people fighting bad people. I'm not going to take a side at all. And I wanted to share with you a little bit about this fantastic column that was in the Sun newspapers this week by Laurie Goldstein. He says, why I won't support the left's Jew haters. Now, that's a very bold statement, but he talks about the fact that there's this expectation that he has to link up with the left, many subsets of which have their own streaks of anti-Semitism, and he says he just won't do that. Laurie Goldstein, Toronto Sun columnist, joins me on the line now. Laurie, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining me this weekend. Happy to be here, Andrew. Where is this anti-Semitism, which is more directly linked, I think, in most people's view to neo-Nazi, coming from on the left, in your view? Yeah, you see, I don't agree with that. I think that um, uh, post-World uh, War II, uh, after, um, after the Holocaust, I think that um, people pretty much um, excoriated um, uh, the right, and the right has never been able to successfully um, mount an argument again, because, because it was based on, um, you know, if you're going to go to a, a, a riot or a demonstration and, and talk about, you know, uh, free speech from the way they do, and then you have the, the Nazi regalia, that serious people aren't going to listen to you. But the left has developed a much more sophisticated way of um, trashing Jewish people. And uh, so the example I used here was, well, you know, uh, the next time you're in the middle of a black bloc uh, riot, because there are plenty of them, just go to a G20 or, or any international gathering of any, um, you know, uh, significant gathering of politicians, and start, you know, take an Israeli flag and start talking about how great Israel is and watch what happens. Um, what the left has done, and I think what really changed the narrative, because I've lived through this, is that when, when Israel won the 67 war um, uh, against uh, the Arab neighbors, uh, you know, that, that was the miracle war, that, that all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Israel was admired uh, for the way it had been able to, um, you, you know, you know <laughs> stave off its own defeat. But then when I was in university in the mid-70s, I already noticed that the narrative was changing. And the reason the narrative was changing was because the left was anti-American because of the Vietnam War, because of a whole other things. But then uh, what happened was America, the left, had Israel become the proxy for America. So if you want to use the language of the Ayatollahs, uh, the United States was the great Satan, Israel was the little Satan. And then it, it developed even more into this pose, and I want to be careful when I say it, the pose of that Israel is the worst human rights violator in the world. Uh, and that's what we see in the BDS campaign, which is, you know, compares um, Israel to apartheid um, South Africa. Now, the left will say, and they always do, and, and professors and other um, very confused people provide the intellectual cover for them, that to be against Israel isn't to be anti-Jewish. And of course that's true. All kinds of people criticize Israel. I've criticized Israel, uh, actions in the occupied territories. Uh, the Israeli newspaper Haratz criticized them. There's lots of Jews in Israel and in the diaspora who criticize Israel. But what, the vast, but what fair-minded people don't do is they don't focus only on Israel and ignore every other human rights violation ever committed on Earth. And when you look at these groups and how they approach the question of Israel, you'll see they're not... They're not talking about outrageous in China or the Islamic Republic of Iran or the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Um, they only talk about Israel. And when you do that, when you ignore context, 
when you when you cite, um, no matter how nobly you talk about the wrongdoings of one nation, when you exclude every other nation, um, when you don't talk about them, when you never raise them, well, then to me, at some point, what you're doing becomes obvious. And that is that you were doing what the right used to do. You were targeting Jews. As, you're literally scapegoating, going back to biblical times, the scapegoating. I, something that really influenced me was I once um, spoke with a, a London conservative politician, and he told me that he'd had an interview with the chief rabbi of London, as I recall. That's why I attributed it to a rabbi in my piece. And the rabbi said to him, look, in ancient times, religion was the paradigm of society. And so people who hated the Jews said that they were the worst religion. Not only were they worst religion, but in what's known as the blood libel, they accused Jews of killing Christians, specifically Christian children, hmm. for blood to make their matzah. Okay, now let's transport ourselves to the Second World War, where science, you know, in the mid-20th century, science was our, our modern paradigm. So what did the Nazis do? They tried to prove through science that the Jews were a quintessentially evil race different from all other races. Interesting, because Jews aren't a race, but that's what they did. Now let's flash forward today. What's the modern paradigm of our times? It's human rights. So what do the enemies of Israel do? They say that Israel is uniquely evil among nations in violating the human rights of the Palestinians in the occupied territories. No other nation, apparently, no other nation violates, has ever violated human rights the way Israel has. And then the ultimate thing, they compare it to South Africa during apartheid, Israeli apartheid. So, and we can see, it's the same argument, and this is an argument, by the way, that's almost exclusive to the left now. So it's the same argument all the time. It's, you, you, take, you scapegoat somebody, and then you say they are the worst, and you do that because you hate Jews. And for proof, I would say the Parliament of Canada our Prime Minister, and I disagree with our Prime Minister on a lot of things, but I thank him and I thank the Conservatives who passed a motion who said that the, uh, the so-called boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign, um, which is basically another yeah. way to de delegitimize and demonize, and they have said, no, that's a campaign to delegitimize and demonize Israel. Well, Israel is the Jewish state, so if you're doing that, that's what you're about. So all I was saying is, don't give me the, this, because this, I was reading, I was reading from all kinds of commentators, even some of them Jewish, in the wake of what, this awful thing that happened in Charlottesville. I said, don't give me the simplistic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's utter nonsense. And others, serious journalists who compared Antifa to allied soldiers fighting the Nazis in World War Oh yeah, supposedly conservative McLean's columnist did that, and I'm like, give me a break, we're, we're talking about uh, a bad side fighting a bad side, if we boil it down to neo-Nazis versus Antifa. I mean, obviously there were legitimate anti-fascist protesters, but the Antifa group is anti-fascist in name only, with its worldview. Yeah, well, look, and also, to, I, don't think I've, I don't think I read the McLean ones, but it was everywhere. And, and like, Okay, so, like, I tweeted out, okay, how many of our allied soldiers came back to Canada and rioted, saying, smash the state. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, come on. Like, let's use the brains and the analytical skills we were involved in. And, and then the, the other thing I find ridiculous is that conservatives have to dissociate themselves now from the neo-Nazis. Um, you know, my, my father-in-law, who, who was Catholic, by the way, spent four years in Mauthausen, which was the one where, the, that was the concentration camp where they put politically incorrigible enemies of the Third Reich. He survived. He, he, he was thrown in because he helped 
uh, to distribute and edit wow. an underground newspaper. Um, and he was Polish. Um, my father, my late friend, both my, my father-in-law and father now deceased, but my late father, when he was six years old, he was smuggled out of Russia during a pogrom. And for any of your listeners who don't know what a pogrom is, a pogrom was organized, organized campaigns of hatred, often certainly leading to persecution, often leading to death of Jews in Russia. So the other point I made is never mind all this nonsense about sides. Here's the reality. When the extreme right and the extreme left, there's a place where the extreme right and the extreme left meets. And in that place, whether it's Nazis or communists or fascists or whatever you want to call them, there is violence and minorities don't do well. And one of the more least well is Jews. Lori Goldstein had a fantastic piece in the Sun Papers this week, why I won't support the left's Jew haters. Lori, I'm glad you were able to come on the show today. Such an important message you had there, and I thank you for it. Thank you for having me. All right, all the best to you, sir. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Did you ever think we'd be living in an age where laws are but mere suggestions? Borders are about as ironclad as if I'm actually trying to color within the lines. I mean, maybe in theory I stick within them, but you know what? It doesn't really work out that well. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, called the border crossings that we're seeing, thousands upon thousands of them illegally, by the way, into Quebec, into Manitoba, other parts of the country as well. He called them irregular border crossings. We're going to play a clip of that very shortly, but a regular border crossing. So we're not even calling them illegal border crossings since Canada Day. So in one month and 19 days, 7,000 migrants have walked into Quebec alone. We've had thousands upon thousands of people that have been crossing the border from the U.S. to seek asylum since January 1st, since New Year's Day. And many of these people, where they're supposed to be assessed within 72 hours, are actually being given a date a month or two months down the road to come back and go through all the screening because they're such a bottleneck. We've had to call in the military. They've had to turn Olympic housing or they've had to turn Olympic venues into housing. All of this taking place. And Justin Trudeau has been conspicuously silent on much of it. I want to welcome into the show Michelle Rempel, the conservative immigration critic to The Roy Green Show with guest host Andrew Lawton across Canada on this great Sunday of ours. Michelle, it's good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. So this is really, really problematic. I mean, I I think that when we look at immigration into the country, we look at it as being a thing that is used for people to get a a great safety zone if they're coming from a a war-torn region for people that are seeking better economic prospects. They can come to Canada. There's a process here, and I've not seen anything in the last few weeks with all of these stories that suggest that process is actually being followed now. That's right. I'm... What we've seen since January is an increase, as you've noted, of people entering the country illegally. And I think a lot of that was precipitated by the fact that after the Americans put in place their executive order around immigration, the prime minister tweeted out, hashtag welcome to Canada. And since then, our policies have been all over the map. Uh, You know, to date, the prime minister has not come out and said, this is illegal, this is unsafe, do not do this. If you do this, you will be intercepted by the RCMP, you will be processed quickly, and if your claim is not found to be valid, you will be returned to your country of origin. And he hasn't done that for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, he hasn't appointed a lot of judges and different resources to the board, the Immigration Refugee Board, 
that makes those determinations. So we're forecasting an 11-year wait for those claims to be processed. So, you know, of course there's incentive for people to illegally cross the border. So the prime minister needs to fix this mess. This is uh, solely of his own creation. It is unacceptable for the government's response to be, let's build refugee camps on the Canadian-American border. He needs to make sure that these uh, people are being intercepted, that they are being processed quickly, and that many, actually a large portion of these people, their claim will not be valid because they're coming from the United States and the Trudeau government has upheld the safe third country agreement. They just can't dance around this anymore because it's going to become increasingly more um, prominent in terms of the amount of people that are crossing the border. You said in a tweet yesterday that there's an Immigration Refugee Board forecast of an 11-year backlog, as it is. That's right. So reports about two months ago came out that showed that between the backlog, or sorry, between the lack of resources that the Immigration and Refugee Board has sort of been squished under the Trudeau government, and then this massive spike of people crossing the border illegally, we're seeing a huge backlog. So to your point at the start of, you know, the, the show... Um, we want to make sure that Canada's asylum claim system is working so that the world's most vulnerable, uh, those with legitimate claims, are being processed quickly and they're being, uh, you know, brought into Canada to have a successful experience. This is not the case. Everybody, this is not compassionate. This system used to work well under our government, and in the last two years, we've just seen this completely fall to shambles. The 11-year wait time is particularly bad because... Prime Minister isn't talking about the fact that this particular decision is going to have an impact on social assistance payments, the social assistance programs in the provinces. Uh, Many times when people are crossing the border and making asylum claims, they're, um, you know, they're in a position where they need to draw on social assistance programs, welfare, um, you know, subsidized housing. There's no budget to deal with that. And can you imagine if we, you know, hit that forecast 11-year wait time, uh, the cost to the provinces and the taxpayer on that. And my worry is, as somebody who wants to see the asylum claim system work well, because we are a compassionate country, what does that do to the rest of the country? We're going to have this super polarized debate, uh, you know, then it's going to be finger pointing where, you know, Trudeau needs to come out right now and start acting like a prime minister, and he hasn't done that yet, and it's very disappointing. It helps nobody. When we look at the Quebec migrants in particular, a lot of them are coming from Haiti, going to Quebec because of the language, uh, the shared language, obviously. And and for the Haitians, we're not talking about people who are fleeing a war-torn region. We're talking about people that are or have fled to the U.S., a, a region that was ravaged by disaster, and there was always supposed to be an expiration date on that. It's been bumped back a bit, but now that is going to be January 1st, 2018. So uh, thousands and thousands of Haitians in the U.S. will be facing potential deportation back to the United States. Do you think that is a legitimate claim for asylum in Canada, that these people have been in the U.S. for a period of time, their country has been rebuilt to some extent? I mean, it's Haiti, and there's an unfortunate reality that Haiti, even a rebuilt Haiti, is still uh, certainly subpar to Canada's standards. But do you think that's a legitimate claim? So there's a reason why we have the Immigration uh, and Refugee Board. It's so that these decisions don't become politicized. The IRB, in concert with officials at the Department of Immigration, uh, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, they apply a set of criteria to whether or not blanket amnesties for deportation, as the Haitian community saw between 2004 and 2010, when that should be lifted. It was under the Trudeau government many, many months ago that that 
blanket amnesty that you're talking about. It was put in place after the earthquake and then extended after there was severe political unrest. That's actually lifted. So what you're talking about, the situation that's happening in the United States right now, in a lot of ways, the Trump administration is following Justin Trudeau's lead on that. So what's happening is, you know, I think because Justin Trudeau's tweets, a lot of the people in the Haitian community think in, in the United States think that if they come illegally cross the border, which is unsafe, right, for them, uh, that their claims will be accepted. And that's not the case. So, you know, Justin Trudeau needs to himself come out and put a statement out and say, this uh, amnesty has expired. Um, if you come to Canada in this way, you're risking yourself. And it's highly, it's it virtually, it, 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 it's virtually a certainty that your asylum claim will not be uh, found valid. So I just find it's very irresponsible. You know, he's sort of giving a wink and a nod to all of these people for some unknown reason, um, but he's giving them false hope. And in giving them false hope, he's also backlogging a system that once worked. Uh, he's costing the uh, Canadian taxpayer hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's just, it's, it's insanity. Like, I mean, you know, I'm sorry to be so passionate about this, but I, I, I just, I, we have been talking about this for months. Mm-hmm. And the response to the gov- that the government has made to this after saying we're monitoring the situation, nothing to see here, folks, they built, they built a refugee camp. Like, this is, they're building a shanty town on the U.S.-Canada border. And that's, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. And the Prime Minister needs to be held to account. I don't care how you voted. This is something that every Canadian of all political stripes should be saying. This isn't compassionate. This is just, this is garbage. This is poor management. And it's putting people's lives at risk. But even if all of these people were crossing at legal border crossings, they were going through the process that's supposed to happen rather than just having this, you know, polite discouragement from the government. You know, we'd prefer if you come at a border crossing, but if not, well, you know what, all's well that ends well. If you were the immigration minister right now, would you want to see a system in place where these people actually get status in Canada? Or do you think the claim is such that if they are facing deportation back to Haiti, that is the proper course of action. Because ultimately, no matter how these people seek asylum status, we're going to get to that point where we have to decide, should they stay or should they go? If you were the minister, I know it's a challenging question, but what would you think is the proper course of action? If I was the minister of immigration right now, I would walk into Trudeau's office and I would not leave until he had, and I would watch him do this, go on national TV and tweet and say the following... Canada has an open and welcoming asylum claim system. However, you are not welcome to enter the country through illegal means. If you do that, you will be intercepted and arrested by the RCMP. I've resourced up the IRB so that your, your claim would be processed in days, not 11 years. And many of your claims will not be found valid. After it's not found valid, you will be returned to your country of origin. It is highly unlikely that your claim will be found valid if you're entering from the United States because we are upholding the safe third country agreement. Do not do this. Like, Justin Trudeau needs to be a leader on this. Like, he's sending out Mark Garneau. He's sending out the Canadian military to build tent cities. And this is a message of his own doing. Where is Justin Trudeau on this? He's completely abdicated his responsibility in this situation. And I think that if he came out, like, like, think about this. If you're a Haitian in the United States right now and you're in that community, it's like, don't worry, Justin Trudeau's got our back. It's well, and, and they're obviously them, mobilizing you know? when thousands and thousands are going to the same border crossings. This is not just a bunch of people reaching the same conclusion. This is a, a very orchestrated and concerted yes, effort. Absolutely. And that's where the prime minister needs to take the bull by the horns on this. You know what they've, they've issued so far in response to eight months of pressure from the entire Canadian public? What, what they've issued is a small flowchart 
by the department, which is in like two-point illegible font in mealy mouth words. Justin Trudeau needs to come out and say, do not enter the country illegally. I am going to enforce the rules that were already in place. We're an open and welcoming country, but you have to come in through the rules and you have to come in in a way that the system is respected. And then Justin Trudeau himself has to respect these rules. It is completely preposterous to argue that people are fleeing persecution from the United States of America. It is one of the most stable democracies in the world and is completely preposterous for the, the, the response to this situation to be building a tent city. That is crazy. That is the most ludicrous thing I can't, like that would never have mm-hmm. crossed the mind of any conservative cabinet minister. I, I, I can't even imagine the response my former boss would have given to me if I was immigration minister and decided to open a refugee camp on the U.S.-Canada border because it's putting people's lives at risk. What happens in the winter? That's only a couple of months away. This is just bananas and you know if justin trudeau or his staff are listening today you know i'm pointing the finger at them you know they're sitting in the pmo they're thinking that this is some sort of game it's not they need to fix this this is serious people's lives are at risk and i i hope canadians hold them to account on this conservative immigration critic michelle rempel joining me on the line she didn't even bring me a flow chart although i saw your revised version (laughs) on your twitter feed Uh, michelle great talking to you again thanks so much for your time today thanks all right all the best to you you're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And one major story in terms of its impact between the relationship that Canada and the United States share that in a lot of ways did not get nearly the coverage I think it should have this week with all that was happening in the world elsewise was the NAFTA renegotiations, which kicked off. We had Christian Freeland, the trade minister down in the U.S., talking about these things, the U.S. taking a very critical stance of NAFTA. Now, is it a negotiating position or is it genuinely the position that the U.S. government has? We don't know. Donald Trump, the American president, has in the past spoken about wanting to just tear up NAFTA. So having them back at the table is at least a step forward in the positive direction here. But what are the key stakes from supply management to oil sands to declining manufacturing jobs in Canada and the U.S.? I want to talk about some of this with John Johnson, who is a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and also advised Canada's Office of the Trilateral Trade Negotiations during NAFTA negotiation. John, it's good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, uh, pleasure to be here. So when the U.S. has come in in the past and at times said, you know what, we're going to rip up NAFTA, this must make it very challenging to go up against them when there's this fear that they could just be walking away at any given moment, or would that be to the U.S.'s detriment to walk away from NAFTA? Well, firstly, I I think it would be very much to their detriment. Um, Also, there'd be massive pushback both from Congress and from the business community in fact, the president does not have the power to rip up NAFTA. Uh, trade is clearly a, in the purview of Congress, and Congress would have to sign on for ripping off NAFTA, and I just don't think they'll do that. One of the things that the U.S. negotiator did say is, quote, we feel that NAFTA has fundamentally failed many, many Americans and needs major improvement. We cannot ignore the huge trade deficits, the lost manufacturing jobs, the businesses that have closed or moved because of incentives, intended or not, in the current agreement, unquote. So let's talk about that. I mean, is that a distortion of NAFTA's impact to Americans? I think it is a distortion. I think that a great deal of the job loss in in the United States and also in Canada is automation as opposed to uh, NAFTA. The trouble with trade agreements 
is that job losses are very specific. In other words, some company decides to move a plant from somewhere in the United States to Mexico. 300 people lose their jobs. It's pretty obvious. Uh, NAFTA is at fault. But when you look at the job churn, other jobs created, uh, parts producers starting to produce more parts for Mexico and so on and so on, it's, it's quite difficult to sort all that out. But one thing that's for certain is that automation has resulted in the loss of a great many jobs in North America. The American manufacturing sector produces more stuff now than they ever had with considerably fewer workers. If trade were at fault, they wouldn't be producing as much. So I guess that brings around the question of what is the U.S. really standing to gain from Canada specifically here in these negotiations? I know one that we've talked about in the past, a number of uh, voices in Canada has been supply management, which would allow a little bit more competition from U.S. dairy uh, industry representatives. But this is, again, one part of, of a really wide-ranging agreement. What can we give them that would make it appealing to the U.S.? Well, there's, there's, there's a number of things that they want. Um, Supply management is obviously fairly high on their list. The problem with supply management is that supply management is a form of subsidy. You can subsidize the dairy industry by Mm -hmm. restricting supply and raising prices. That gives higher margins to the farmers. Another way of doing it is writing checks. We restrict supply. The Americans write checks. The problem is that if we eliminated supply management without dealing with U.S. subsidies, I think our dairy industry would uh, get uh, wiped out. Um, And I don't know how anxious the Americans are to deal with that issue. Because they would have to deal with their own house and get it in order in order for that to be at all fair. Okay. Oh, yes. No, that, that, and that's probably the way to approach it. I don't know. We've, We've opened up supply management. We've agreed to do it under the CETA. We'd also agreed to do it under the TPP, but that's, uh, of course, uh, no longer going to go forward. So outside of the the agri-food and agriculture sector and the dairy industry in particular, what are the big ones when the idea of manufacturing job losses, which have hit the Canadian marketplace as well as the U.S. marketplace, and you're right when you point out automation there, but is there anything that would be amenable to both sides in NAFTA and in the purview of NAFTA? Well, there's... There's a couple of U.S. demands, things that are on the table. They're, they're quite worrisome. This, this group in the U.S. seems to be preoccupied with trade balances, and that's trade and goods balances. And uh, Lighthouser was pretty adamant about doing something about that, and he cited trade imbalances with Mexico and trade imbalances with Canada. Now, for layman, what is the significance of a trade imbalance? They, they, they import far more than they export. Okay. So, and and this is and when when they're, when they're talking about that, they're talking about goods. They seem to leave services off the table. Our balance of trade with the United States usually is positive in our favor. That is almost certainly because of oil. Now they can go get the oil for Venezuela if they want to, but uh, that is the reason for the trade imbalance as between Canada and the U.S. And so far as uh, the other component of that is services and. Uh, they have a very considerable trade surplus in trade and services with us. So uh, the, the, the problem with putting this on the table, though, is that how do you deal with it? And there really isn't any good way to deal with it that would be, I think, acceptable to Canada. I mean, you, you, uh, 
what you would end up with some sort of managed trade arrangement, and I just don't think that's on. Um, another U.S. demand, which I think is a non-starter, is uh, specific U.S. content in autos. In other words, not just regional content, and by regional I mean Canadian, Mexican, U.S., but specific U.S. content in autos, and I think that that would be that would be very difficult. Um, chapter 19 is one area the U.S. dislikes intensely. That is a, a process for reviewing decisions in anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases. Uh, that came out of the 1987 negotiations. There's a long, long story behind that. They want it done away with. Our industry regards it as being um, highly useful, hmm. but there are problems with it. And the big problem is is that the U.S. has to cooperate in order for it to work properly. And this bunch don't seem to be very, you know, they ha- seem to have no interest in Chapter 19 working. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, and there's various other things. Obviously, it was the Americans that drove this renegotiation. But very quickly, is, is any deal considered a win for Canada? Or is there one really major accomplishment that Canadians would like to get out of this? Well, I think the major thing is to have... NAFTA more or less survive as it is now, uh, that would be a major win. In other words, not to do too much damage to uh, uh, rules of origin, mm-hmm. auto trade not being severely disrupted, um, not having ridiculous buy American uh, things uh, yeah. the government. Really combating the, the protectionism. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'm it, a, there, there, I'm afraid I have to take a break here. John Johnson, senior fellow at C.D. Howe Institute and uh, someone who also advised the Office of the Trilateral Trade Negotiations during NAFTA. John, I really appreciate your time and insight on this. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. All the best to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm Andrew Lawton, guest hosting for Roy today. Wanted to look outside of Canada, though, for this particular segment here. There was a story that CBC, uh, CBS News rather, ran earlier this week that had a headline that was a very concerning story behind it. But the headline itself was really misrepresenting it. It was talking about the country that has almost eliminated Down syndrome. And look, I've known people that have Down syndrome. I've known people that have those in their family that do. And I was actually quite shocked and, and pleasantly surprised to hear, oh my goodness, there's a country that for whatever reason has managed to make it so that this is not an issue. Well, then you read a little bit in. The country in question is Iceland. And they're not eliminating Down syndrome. They're eliminating people with Down syndrome through abortion. You can detect the gene that is the precursor to Down syndrome in utero, utero, which means when a child is still in the mother's womb. And in Iceland, they have a near 100% abortion rate if that gene is detected. Whereas in the West, there is a high abortion rate, but obviously people are, are able to look around at the resources available and the lives that people with Down syndrome have led going into adulthood with uh, quite a high average age compared to many other conditions. But no, in Iceland, only one or two children escape abortion every year that actually have Down syndrome. And this story has been very legitimately criticized, despite how it was initially presented, but does it bring around a discussion that we need to have? I think so. And I want to do it on this show because I know a lot of other media sources won't. And I do want to bring in Stephanie Gray, who's a profoundly positive and also incredibly talented pro-life speaker and author based in British Columbia. Stephanie, it's wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me on your program. The idea of Down syndrome being met with abortion is not a new concept. We know it happens in Canada and the U.S., other countries and and jurisdictions where abortion is legal. And we know that the test itself is used with with varying degrees of, 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 I guess, devotion, depending on the particular parents involved. In Iceland, it's all but essentially required. It's so common, this test, and and then the result of it is is obviously that we have parents that are aborting, and now this is really a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, because now that everyone else is doing it, parents are are led to this position that, I guess this, this is what we must do here. How did you feel when you heard about this? Because I, I was truly sickened, and I, I deal in the news a lot. I, I see really uncomfortable things and unpleasant things. can't remember the last one that hit me as hard as this one did. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I was horrified, um, especially because in a way it affects me personally. I spent um, some time in Eastern Europe and Romania looking after children in a failure to thrive clinic, and the little baby that I was assigned to take care of for the duration that I was there, had Down syndrome. And I watched him transform over the time that I was there when he had someone giving him attention and working on his leg strength and helping him stand up and, and these little milestones. And I saw this, this little boy just come to life when he was loved and cared for. And to think that you have not only in Iceland, but of course in our own backyard in the vast majority of countries around the world where many of these children that I cared for will never get to be cuddled and loved because they will be dismembered and decapitated through abortion. And, you know, I think you made a really valid point in your introduction. Iceland has not eliminated Down syndrome. It has eliminated people with Down syndrome. And that's the key point here. They're killing people because those people have a genetic difference compared to others. I hate going down the road of comparing anything with Nazi Germany or with communist states because I realize it's so overdone. And a lot of the times it's so extreme and and deliberately polemic. And I'm not comparing the Icelandic government to Nazi Germany. I'm, I'm comparing the practice, however, of getting rid of those deemed undesirable, of those deemed deformed or defective with a practice that was ubiquitous in that part of history. And, and that's the most chilling part here. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the origins of the Holocaust, the Nazis were led by an idea that there were lives unworthy of life lives unworthy of life, the English translation. And so that has made its way into the abortion debate, as we're seeing in the context of uh, children with Down syndrome being killed, with the idea that their quality of life is not at the level that others deem to be standard, and therefore they are eliminated. And so we were supposed to have learned from the past that human life has inherent value, and our value does not go up or down based on our abilities or our genetic anomalies. I reached out to the National Down Syndrome Society asking if one of their spokespeople in the U.S. would be available to speak, and and they weren't speaking. And I don't know if it's because this is a particularly divisive issue within the Down Syndrome community, but they did send a statement, which I I wanted to read a a section of here. They said, around the world, children and adults with Down Syndrome continue to exceed expectations. Individuals with Down Syndrome live independently. They go to college. They work in competitive jobs. They get married. They live to their full potential and lead fulfilling lives. And as one of the world's largest advocacy organizations, we will continue to advocate tirelessly for the total inclusion and acceptance of individuals with Down syndrome in every corner of the world. Like any other condition, there's a spectrum. There are those that need a lot more support than others. There are those that live longer than others. And I think you have that in the non-Down syndrome affected population as well, where you know the mileage of one's life may vary. But I think that this message is, is one that clearly isn't getting through to parents in Iceland, because if it were, 
they would think twice before going down this road. And it's not to say they wouldn't, but it, it's really concerning to me that there seems to be this dearth of information there that in North America is quite widely known, which is, yeah, people with Down syndrome, it doesn't mean it's a death sentence like maybe it did a generation ago to people. Well, absolutely. And I think what we need to get to is the root of why these genetic tests are happening to begin with. Are people pursuing genetic testing while pregnant because they're trying to find out information that they can correct while pregnant or that they can prepare for upon the child being born and and better help the child at birth? In the vast majority of cases, the answer to that is no. These tests are being done just to identify and weed out. And so I think there needs to be, you know, a focused campaign to call into question why the testing is happening to begin with. You know, on that CBS story, I watched one woman say, well, it it wouldn't have mattered to us, so we didn't do the test because if the result came, it wouldn't have changed anything. Unfortunately, she's a minority. The vast majority of people, it would have changed a lot. They likely wouldn't have proceeded with their pregnancy had they done a test that got a positive result. So we need to work on the hearts and minds of people why they have such a negative attitude towards a child who has genetic difference, which brings to mind uh, an amazing organization organization um, called PositiveExposure.org. It's started by a former fashion photographer who takes pictures of people with physical and genetic difference, showing um, basically the positive aspects of their life and focusing not on their disability, but their ability. And I love his tagline, the photographer Rick Widotti. He says, change how you see, see how you change. So that's what really needs to happen here in Iceland. First of all, people need to start with changing how they see people with Down syndrome, not looking at the individual as a negative person, but as a person of great value who's unrepeatable and irreplaceable. And if we can change how we see, then we need to sit back and watch how we ourselves change. I know there was one representative of the March for Life who called on CBS to air a segment about the happiness and benefits that Down syndrome children bring to families. And obviously that's a subjective point, but it's it's important to note in that this segment didn't really have that other side of it, of all the, the people with Down syndrome that do grow up to live independent, fulfilling lives, like that statement from the National Down Syndrome Society said. That was pretty much missing. It was all about the parents that are faced with this from their medical uh, practitioners as essentially being, or certainly the illusion of being the only road forward. Well, and that's why it's so important that we focus on what we ought to control, which is our bad attitudes, not the individual who may have a genetic condition, which isn't ideal. Of course, it's it's a problem. It can lead to heart defects and all kinds of, of complications for those children's lives. But it's the bad attitude we have towards those individuals. And instead, we need to say, okay, if some people who have Down syndrome have led very positive, fulfilling lives, they're very happy. If other people with Down syndrome aren't leading those lives, instead of eliminating the person with Down syndrome, why don't we eliminate the bad circumstances those people are in and work to make their lives as happy and fulfilling as the lives of other people who have proven it is possible? We know sex-selective abortion is a distinct issue, but also one that really goes along the same vein of people using tests, not just for information or to prepare for something, but people using tests as really a step to judge the worthiness of, of someone. And there is another side of this, though, that I was curious to get your take on, which is that if we have have this culture and society wherein a great many Western nations abortion is perhaps not accepted everywhere, but is legally allowed, and in some circles it is very much accepted. Why does the reason or the motivation matter? If this is something that is allowed, why does it matter if someone's doing it because the child has this gene that uh, says they're going to have Down syndrome or just because they don't want a child? 
That's that's a great point. And and I think the more that point is raised, the more the average person who's been accepting of abortion is going to have to realize the implications of their viewpoint. I remember uh, debating an abortionist who said that he would absolutely abort a child who had Down syndrome. And I said, what if a woman didn't want a child aborted because of Down syndrome, but because the child was female and she wanted a male? Would you abort that child? He said, no. And I said, well, what's the difference? And then you could you could tweak the situation a bit and say, well, imagine you have a woman pregnant with a female fetus who has Down syndrome. So now her reason for wanting the child to be aborted is because the child is female. But if his thinking is, but this child has Down syndrome, would he then do it? So this is the problem that arises when we attach people's value to how we feel about them or what we want of them or what they look like or are able to do. And the reality is human rights are grounded in being human, being a member of the the species Homo sapiens, being a part of the human family. And so regardless of someone's sex, regardless of their ability or disability, if they're a member of the human family, they should have the right to life. To bring it back to the CBS report, there was one idea, and we talked about this a couple of moments ago, where the report said they're eliminating Down syndrome, and you and I both shared, obviously, the point here that, no, they're eliminating people with it. The really, really concerning, and I'm going to go so far as to say sinister part of that, is that when the report says that Iceland is on track to eliminate Down syndrome, that that means it's really the very epitome of dehumanization. They don't see these as individuals. They see them solely as the disease, solely as the syndrome. And that's what they don't even talk about them as people, as individuals, as children. They talk about them as the syndrome. Exactly. And that's why I think, you know, it's important we be careful about our language to not talk about a disabled person, but a person with a disability. So what's first and foremost is the individual. And then, oh, by the way, the individual is this age or has this ability or this disability. But the problem is this this perspective that we're overlooking. We're talking about... Uh, a unique human being who has never existed and will never exist again and is here for a purpose. And who are we to claim that we can eliminate them from this world? Stephanie Gray joining me on the line, pro-life speaker and author based in British Columbia. Stephanie, great speaking with you again. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat. Thanks, Andrew. All right. All the best to you. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.